I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, on this episode, we are covering a century-old tax strategy for practice owners like you listening for when you are exiting your physical therapy business. I'm Dave Kittle, owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group, currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all of their practice in the New York and New Jersey area. And today we have Paul Ranieri on the show. He is with Engineered Capital Gains Solutions, and he's a deferred sales trust consultant. Paul, what's going on? Dave, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. We had an awesome time so far on the pre-interview. I look forward to sharing this information with practice owners about how they can use this century-old tax strategy and help them potentially with their financial situation when they are either preparing to exit their practice or once they actually do sell their practice and they get a big lump sum of money. A lot of that, you're going to fill in the gaps there. Um, Before we get into how this type of topic can help the private practice owners listening, can you give us a little bit of a bio and background about yourself and, and what you do? Yeah, definitely. So I started here as a deferred sales trust consultant, and I just love my job. I get to help people every day, and I get to uh, I get to save honestly a lot of practice owners a lot of money and help them a lot of them with retirement, but really just overall uh, just plan for their future. So my main goal here and my main objective, I work with clients as well as centers of influence who you know are looking to use the deferred sales trust. But I really just educate people on the you know basis of what we do and kind of give a 10,000 foot overview of how it works, how it helps. And I almost act like like a little bit of a doctor where people will come to me, they'll give me, hey, these are my symptoms. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm going to be selling my practice for. Here are the prices. This is what my CPA talked with me about. And I'm able to diagnose and, and provide a solution. And Oftentimes, the deferred sales trust is is just exceptional, and it really does help them quite a bit. Sometimes I say, hey, you might be better off just paying your taxes based on your goals, based on what you want to do. And so really, I'm I'm almost like that deferred sales trust kind of doctor. And and if it does work out and it, it looks like it's going to be a good fit, typically what's going to happen is I get them on another call with our trustee, our legal team, and, and get them on their way to... Uh, keeping all of their money in their pocket instead of writing a check to Uncle Sam. Excellent. I want to start with when should a private practice owner reach out to someone like you or their accountant or their accountant refers them, the practice owner, to someone like you? I want to quickly ask that. But before I do, if anyone that's listening, a practice owner, this is also, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I just want to make sure that this, this could benefit or this could be for a private practice owner that's listening that is that owns 100% of the practice themselves. So like they're the solo owner, as well as if they're in a partnership. So if there's two, three, four, or multiple owners that co-own the practice, this could be for them as well, I believe. And then also if they own real estate of where the practice is located, 
as well as if they don't own the real estate and they are just leasing the physical therapy space, the medical space, are all those types of scenarios, because there's that's kind of a, a wide, diverse group of individuals that are practice owners. Some partnerships, some are solo owners, own 100%, some own real estate, some do not. And if they were going to then sell, they would be selling the practice and the real estate potentially, or they sell the practice and they're keeping the real estate. I know that's a lot to throw at you. Could yeah. this potentially be for all those folks or only some of those individuals? Yes, most definitely for everybody. For I'll start with the 1031. It's a great 1031 exchange alternative. So you said real estate. A lot of people, you know, when you think real estate, you say, oh, 1031 exchange. That's my only way to defer taxes. This is another way that you could think of it as maybe an alternative or even a rescue plan. If, if you decide that you're going to start maybe looking using a 1031 exchange, if it falls through or is about to fall through, this is a great backup plan. About the partnerships, it's a perfect way for anybody who's in a partnership for them to separate very, very amicably. They don't need to remain together to achieve tax deferral. They can each use a deferred sales trust if they want to. uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was just about to ask (laughs) if they all have to be in agreement or they can, you can do your own individual thing in that event. Right. They can each do their own individual thing. And that's the great part about it because even if everybody wants to do a deferred sales trust, each of them can have their own. And it's really just based off of their own individual risk tolerance and how they want to invest that money. So they can do a deferred sales trust or they don't have to. Totally up to them. So it's a great way to sever partnerships. Okay. So a private practice owner, let's say that they're thinking about selling their practice in the next 12 to 24 months, next year or two. Is it ever too early to learn more about deferred sales trust? Is it something that they should only speak with you about once they have like they're speaking with potential buyers and they're like really serious about choosing a potential buyer. Maybe they're looking at letters of intent. They're getting closer to selecting a buyer or maybe they're only speaking with, you know, one individual. Maybe it's like their clinic director or some colleague nearby that's going to buy their practice and they know who they're going to sell to. When should a business owner, a practice owner reach out to someone like you to potentially learn a little bit about if they're the right fit or if this would make sense for them? No, really great question. So I would say, you know, I've had someone call me three years out. I, I had it last week. They called me, hey, we're considering in three years, I'm reaching my retirement age. I, I just kind of want to learn a little bit more and see if I can get the most out of my business. And I want to be able to feel comfortable in my retirement. Saw something online, figured I'd give you a call. So I've had someone as early as three years. Now, it's not necessary to be that far in advance by any means. Typically, we like to be involved at least where the letter of intent is. So when they have a letter of intent, that's where we like to at least be involved by. However, if you know they come and, they, and, and a client says, hey, we're closing in two weeks, can you help? We still can help. However, our attorney is going to want some legal verbiage to be put in the contract. And so just for his sake, we like to give him a little bit of time just to make sure everything's not being fit in at the last second. However, you know, it is it is able to be done. So I'd say a good timeline really is within a year is, is probably the best. And then once you have a letter of intent is really when we like to start getting uh, more involved, more actively talking it through, ensuring that we have strategies in place, we have the trust formed and things like that. Okay, awesome. And I know we're going to maybe go into some potential numbers, examples. Before we do that, are there any other kind of like initial or preliminary topics to kind of cover when we're talking about this situation? So usually the first things I'll ask, so, you know, if if someone's going to be reaching out, 
some of the things I'm going to ask you directly, it's it's going to be first and foremost, hey, what's your name? Because then I can talk to you. But I want to know where you're selling. This is the location because every different state obviously has different taxes. I actually have this list right here. And so I'm going to ask, what's the asset? Are you selling in your examples here? You know, is there real estate involved or is it just your practice? So what are you selling? Um, what's the cost basis? You know, how much did you pay for it? How much are you selling for? So next up is sales price. We like to determine, hey, what are the baseline numbers? And they don't have to be exact, of course, but just something close so that we can ballpark if it's going to be a good fit. If there's any outstanding loans, and as well as just like we were just talking about how it's held, do you hold the individually? Is it in an LLC? Is it a partnership? How many owners are there? Things like that. And then that's pretty much it. Those are the main things that I like to talk about and ask to individuals who call. That's usually how I get a good grasp. So if you're planning on giving us a call, then those are some of the questions you should uh, have maybe ready to go. Awesome. Makes a lot of sense. So do you typically collaborate with your own tax attorneys or is it like the attorney of this practice owner who maybe like their personal attorney that they've known for 20 years and like it maybe is not a tax attorney? Like what is some of the dynamic here in terms of like who's kind of assisting you or kind of like co-managing either this decision or even co-managing this whole process? No, it's a really, really good question. I'm actually glad you brought that up. So it wouldn't be their attorney now. However, we do allow, of course, their attorney to be on the call if they'd like to, their CPA, their their team of advisors. We encourage that because we want everyone to be on the same page. So the attorney that would be involved, his, uh, his practice is... They have been vetted by the estate planning team. The estate planning team is the founder and the creator of the Deferred Sales Trust. They've been around for a little over 25 years now. And so they authorize the tax attorneys. They do background checks, all, all, of, the, all of the good stuff that uh, makes sure that they are well-equipped to assist in the process. So they are the tax attorneys that are vetted for the uh, clients that we use uh, or that go through us who use our assistance. And so those are the ones who we get on the phone with the clients and walk through the the process with. Got it. Now that's just that group of tax attorneys. I want to make sure there's not one group that does all this deferred sales trust in the country as the tax component of it, right? It's more of just, that's the group you're talking about. So the estate planning team, they actually have a trademark on this. So this is a, this is like a product. So essentially they're the only tax attorneys who do this. And and they have to go through the estate planning team. So if you have another attorney who's offering this or a similar strategy, it would be a different strategy. So there are other knockoffs of the deferred sales trust because we have so much success. They've been doing it, like I just said, almost 30 years now. They've got a little over, just last year, a little over $3 billion in trust business was closed. And over the last almost 30 years as well, which is important, there's been a little over 12 IRS audits. And all of those have come back and they've been fully closed out, no change audits. So really just giving the IRS's stamp of approval for um, business owners. So that's important because there are knockoff strategies, like I was just mentioning, that do fall under the same tax code, IRC 453, one of which is pretty famous right now. It's been it's been marketed pretty hard to business owners. It's called a monetized installment sale. And for anybody watching, if they're not familiar with what that is, or if you're not familiar with what that is, what it is essentially is a company is going to give you, let's say, 95% of your money. And they will say, hey, 
you put that in your pocket, you take it as a loan and we're not going to charge you any interest. We're going to take 5%. You come back, you owe us that money in 30 years. So the IRS has come back and they've said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's completely constructive receipt. You have the money in your pocket. You have to pay taxes on that. And so they're unable to close out the audits and, and it's just kind of a mess. And so that sometimes when people reach out to us, that's the first question they ask because they do their due diligence. And because we're under the same tax code, oftentimes they get commingled a little bit. And so it's hard for people to figure out the differences. But the main difference is really just around that constructive receipt. And the reason why we have so much success is because the state planning team has kept it so tightly wound and made sure that everybody like our tax attorneys, the trustees, everybody involved is ready to go. They're ready to help the client. They know exactly how it works, how it works with the tax law, that everything follows strict guidelines and make sure that uh, everything is, it's compliant. Got it. So the other, not what you're doing, the deferred sales trust, the other one was, say it again, monetized. What was it? Yeah, it's a monetized installment sale. Sometimes it gives us a bad rap. So basically it's, it, you're saying they're using a similar approach, but they're like, they rebranded it because they cannot call it a deferred sales trust. So yeah, exactly. So it's just a different spinoff of the deferred sales trust. And it's based on the same tax code. That's why it kind of gets commingled a little bit when people research it. Got it. Well, the creators of deferred sales trust, I think that's perfect branding because for the most part of a business owner is going to like understand like, Deferred sales trust, like, and exactly. trust. It's going to be in a trust. It's not going to be in my bank account. Exactly. Exactly that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, um, before we get into any of the numbers, any other final, just kind of thoughts on the overall introductory phase of deferred sales trust? No, I think that that's perfect. And if you have other questions, please, please ask. Well, I think any practice owner watching or listening, I think they would. Their question might be like how do I know if I qualify or not? And I think it would probably depend on some benchmark or hurdle of like, is the practice, if you're, you talked about the letter of intent. So let's say they have a letter of intent, they have a non-bonding letter of intent and offer for their practice. And it's a million bucks or $2 million or $3 million, whatever. Is there some initial number there where they would know like they're either too small or like on the fence or like definitely qualify to engage in this? Great, great question. Yeah. So really, when it starts to make the most sense for clients to use a deferred sales trust just for their own benefit is going to be when it's about a half a million dollars in a capital gains tax bill. And and that number does vary, of course, because every situation is different, but that's generally when it starts to make the most sense. And so the other things that matter are what what are the client's goals? Uh, What do you plan on doing with the money? Are you going to be taking a bunch of it? And are you going to be purchasing a primary residence? And if that's your goal, then you know we can't defer that money because it's going to be constructive receipt if you're using it to buy a primary residence. Therefore, it might not be in your best interest to do that. So that's usually why I like to have that preliminary call like we were talking about, just to just to make sure, you know, hey, what are your goals? And let's figure out what your plans are with the money. And you don't have to know, hey, I'm putting it in X, Y, and Z right now. But just if it's, hey, I'm going to go buy a boat and cruise the Bahamas for the next 20 years. And, uh, you know, it might not be something that matters to you. Right, right. So, but also at the same time, if someone's going to sell their practice and the LOI is a million dollars and maybe their tax bill, depending on which state they're in, right? That sure. certainly changes it. But their tax bill would be two or 300 grand or something in that ballpark. 
like they might not qualify or there might just not be enough like meat on the bone to engage in a deferred sales trust. Is that correct? That's correct. And the reason being is just because what we don't want to do is we don't want the fees to create the deferred sales trust. We don't want those to outweigh the benefits of it. And so as it gets a little bit on the smaller side, you're still going to be paying the fees. However, if you're going to be, you know, maybe in five years, you don't want to hold this for that long. If you want to take that money in five years, you might want to pay the taxes. So now you're going to be paying fees and taxes. So you might as well just pay the taxes up front because we don't want to do anything that's going to hurt you. So we really want to make sure that we don't do anything that hurts the client. So that's why, of course, we we have to make sure that their goals align with the structure. Got it. And obviously, in terms of like the actual dollar amount of the fees, like they'll have to contact you to learn more and all that. And it's going to depend sure. on probably their their situation. But are the are you, are the fees typically flat rate or is it like a percentage of the overall sum? Great question. So there's actually two sets of fees. So the first set of fees, it's the attorney fees. And now what that does is it it's the cost to create the trust, indemnify the trust, and then also it's ongoing audit protection. So if at any reason, at any time, the trust gets audited or if the client gets audited and the trust becomes under audit due to them being audited, the uh, our attorneys protect it at no additional cost. So that's all included in the original one-time fee. Now, the second set of fees, that's the trustee and asset management fees. So those sets of fees, they're designed to be almost identical to what any regular any regular financial advisor, wealth manager would be charging. So we don't want it to hurt them. We, we do act as like a fiduciary in that mindset where we just want to make sure it's going to be in line with what any other strategy or, or market implementation would be. Got it. So practice owner, $500,000 tax bill or larger, which again, kind of, I can't recall if we only talked about that in the pre-interview or if we mentioned here. So let's just clarify if they have a $500,000 sure. tax bill, then they're usually selling, depending on which state and city and all that, uh, yeah. they're usually getting a lump sum because they're selling for $1.5 million or $2 million, and then obviously goes up from there. So that then they're qualifying as a, a sizable enough tax bill to go down this whole path. Correct. Exactly that. Just like you were saying, I don't think we mentioned it yet, so I'm glad you brought that up. Perfect. Perfect. Anything else in terms of numbers? So any other numbers that would kind of help practice owners? A lot of the practice owners that, you know, that listen or watch, they are in the kind of the range of like one to 10 locations. So they're probably in that range of like a million dollars to $10 million in revenue. And so they probably would qualify, maybe not so much on the, on the lower end, or some of those folks might be on the fence, but any other like, just high level numbers, we're not going to try to pin you to them or anything like that. But any, any, other, <laughs> sure. any, any other like, financial considerations or any other, like we talked about fees and some other costs for this. We talked about a little bit of the process. Any other like examples? I mean, we, we talked about the 500K sure. to make, make it like it's sizable enough, but anything else that would kind of give them clarity around this? Sure. Well, let me give you an example of one that it, it's not a identical, but it'll be something that people can wrap their heads around a little bit. So this is a real life example. I'm not going to use names. I'm just going to say Bob. So we've got a client currently out in Beverly Hills. His name is Bob and he is selling his property that he bought back a little over 30 years ago for around $800,000. So that's his cost basis. He paid off his mortgage a long time ago and it's currently about to sell for about 20 million. So he was going to owe, especially in California, that it was a little over 42%, I believe in capital gains wow. taxes. So wow. it, it would hurt. 
And so he was thinking, well, you know what? I'm just going to rent it. I don't want to pay seven and a half million dollars in in taxes. And so we've been talking to him, working with him, and he's extremely excited because now instead of writing a, a check to Uncle Sam for seven and a half million dollars and never seeing a dollar of it after that, he's essentially going to be getting an interest free loan from the government. And Uncle Sam is going to say, hey, yeah, you can pay that back to me at any time. As long as I get my cut, eventually we're good. So he's going to be able to generate an income off of seven and a half million dollars. And even if he generates, you know, four, five, five percent of seven million dollars is 350K a year. And of course, this is a, a larger example. But really, the the main idea is that time value of money and having that opportunity to generate more income grow your wealth instead of just giving it away right away. So that's a that's a real big theme, I would say, that uh, it's a big reason why people do use a deferred sales trust. Got it. Now, in the pre-interview, we said we would not touch on like mortality or, or any, anything <laughs> sure. morbid, but if in that situation, in that example, yes. like if you're deferring that tax, like is that something that could be a burden on the family, the son or daughter or something like that? Like if you're saying eventually that has to be paid. So then how? Great. How or is that something that's maybe it's already dictated in the trust at some point in time, it needs to be paid or how, how does that work? So great, great question. Um, there's a lot of estate planning that can also be lumped into this. So the note, the promissory note does not trigger on death. So it just gets passed to your kids. The kids can then, uh, or the estate, which would most likely go to your kids, uh, whatever the beneficiary is. So that's something that our attorney will work with you to determine and see how you have planned for the future. There are some also strategies. So in this same case, actually, we're looking at doing a premium finance policy. So what that is essentially uh, on the insurance policy side, what he's going to be doing is taking, I believe it was somewhere about $75,000 a year. And he's going to be putting that towards a life insurance policy that's going to be paying out $7.5 million at the end of the 10 years that he's paying the seven or at the whenever he expires. And so his kids would then be able to take over all of that money for essentially tax-free. However, of course, the government is still getting their money. We're not eliminating taxes by any means. The taxes always will get paid. If any principal ever gets touched, taxes will be paid. So it's just, there's a lot of strategies nonetheless that can be used and a lot of planning that can, that can really go on. And it's pretty high level. So Typically, our legal team will discuss all of that with you and go over what's going to make the most sense for the client. Got it. So question for you in regards to a little slightly off topic, but we speak with a lot of practice owners. We always want to ask, like, why are they even thinking about selling? And so usually it's somewhere around like they want to be with their kids or grandkids more. They want to travel domestically more. They want to travel to Europe and, and abroad more. They are frustrated, they're kind of burnt out with like insurance or admin or, you know, the, those types of like the paperwork issues. And ultimately also, you know, with health and uh, if they have maybe a surprise diagnosis or or something going on with their health and wellness, where they kind of want to, you know, get everything in order and also kind of focus on their health and wellness and maybe not be in the office as much again. So there's a little off topic, but like, is that something that it's kind of within this conversation? Is this something that like, when you're so the example with Bob in California, was there sure. like, was that something that you even discussed? Like, why are you selling this to make sure that this, you know, is right for your client? And in some case, it might be better for them to hold it. So, like, is that something that you speak with your clients about, like their decisions as to why they're doing what they're doing? 
A hundred percent. So that that's really the first first question we we ask. Um, hey, what's your motivating factor for for this sale? What are your goals for after? Do you want to not do anything? Do you just want to live on this money for as long as possible and support you know your family, your kids? Do you want to just hang out with your grandkids? Is this your retirement path? Do you want to reinvest in more businesses? Is this your first business and you want to use this to fund new ones, but you have more capital to work with? Because that happens as well. So really, it's it's a it's a sliding scale, and it does kind of depend a lot. Now, I know you mentioned a little bit about if hey, what happens if someone gets sick? If they have an illness? If they get a random diagnosis that maybe they need money for it? Can they pull money out of the trust? So the answer is yes. At that time, you would pay capital gains taxes proportionate to the sale because anytime you touch your principal, you'll pay capital gains taxes. But of course, you just reach out to our office and say hey. You would reach out to our trustee. You would say, hey, Quinn, you know, I've got my wife. She recently found out she has cancer. We need, you know, $50,000 for treatment. Do you mind sending that over? Yep, sure. Just need you to sign a couple of documents. We'll get it wired over. So there is a little bit of flexibility in that. Now, with that said, if you start every month or two saying, hey, I need 20 grand. I want to go buy a car or, hey, I need 10 grand. I need to go do this or do that. That the IRS will look at that and they'll say, "Hey, this is practically your bank account. Mm-hmm. We we can't have well, that." But, 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 this but, is but, if receipt. but if they're paying capital gains on it, would it matter? Would it matter if they're dipping into it like every month or every six months or something like that? Like if they're paying capital gains on whatever they're taking out of the trust, IRS would still look at that as some potential issue. Yeah. So in the code, in the tax code, the exact verbiage is it says infrequent and necessary. So that's why. So if it's if you can make a justification for it as that it's not just a personal bank account. So really, if you just think about it kind of reasonably, it, it helps with the justification for it. So, hey, my wife had cancer. You know, I, I got to pay for it. It's yeah, that, that makes sense. Signed off. The IRS isn't going to be like, oh, this is you taking it out of your bank account. Now, if it's, hey, I wanted to buy two new jet skis. I saw these electric bikes that look pretty cool. So things like that. Got it. But you did mention about if they wanted to invest in other businesses, right? So sure. what if they're taking infrequently, but they're they are taking some, you know, legally they're they're paying the capital gains, they're taking some amount out of the trust because they're finding they're getting more deals across their desk. Like maybe they want to invest in other like if they had sold their physical therapy practice and now they want to invest in either some other business in physical therapy or yeah. something ancillary, like something in like the health and wellness space or a CrossFit gym or some new CrossFit, whatever the next trend is like, and they're like, want to invest in that. It's not necessarily like medically necessary or needed, but it could like, if it is infrequent, how could they do that? Like, and and would that be frowned upon? No. So that's a great question. And actually you can keep that within the trust. As long as there's an investable interest for the trust, you're able to invest in other opportunities like that and keep that money tax deferred as long as it is an investment. So some people will, a very common thing is a lot of people will buy investment properties and they will go ahead and they'll speak with our attorney. They set up an LLC and um, they do an 80-20 split and they're able to keep that money invested or keep that money tax deferred and invest in real estate. So there's a lot of flexibility with the deferred sales trust, which is one of the main reasons that people are drawn to it, I would say. And so there's so much flexibility, really, 
that it sometimes it's a bad thing for people because they're like, oh, I want to do this, 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 this. So that's that's the downside. So if you're going to ask me probably eventually, hey, what are the downsides? There's so much flexibility that could almost do harm because you don't want to do that. That's why it's so important and that everyone gets trained and follows the certain procedures, understanding and, and walks through and implements how to make sure that it's going to be suitable and, and best fit for the clients. Got it. So just to kind of, you know, extend off of what you just said. So maybe yeah. downsides, uh, and you can certainly list other ones, but would be if there's an individual who realizes like, oh, it's actually, you know, I was doing it in- infrequently. I was, I was not touching the money or I was taking it out infrequently, but then maybe they get excited about other opportunities, other, you know, real estate projects, business investment projects, whatever it might be. And then if they're kind of accelerating the frequency of taking the money out, that would probably be one downside because then the IRS can look at it as like, you're kind of using this now as a, as a bank account, as opposed to a trust. So that sounds like a downside depending on the person and their usage of, of removing funds. And then what would be some other like downsides where someone could, you know, kind of lose their focus on what they originally structured with this trust? So good question. So, and, and a lot of those, just to circle back, a lot of those investments, those all get to stay in the trust. All of that, those funds get to stay tax deferred. So all of that money does stay within the trust and they're earning interest on it. And so the other side of the coin for, actually, do you mind repeating, repeating the question? Dave? Yeah, yeah. No, no problem. No problem. Uh, awesome. So you, you help clarify that if they have the se- deferred sales trust set up, but they get new opportunities. They want to invest in physical yeah. therapy businesses. They want to invest in other real estate projects. They can do that. They can make those investments. That stays within the trust. So it's not they're not taking money out of the trust and paying the capital gains to the, make those investments. So it's staying within the trust. And that would be... So that is kosher. That's okay. What would be some other areas where an individual could either slip up or you know have some downside as to like this kind of going awry. Gotcha. Okay. So I think the best way to answer that really is a lot of people, they, they're so caught up in the fact that it's, Hey, you know, what, what could go wrong? Tell me about it. And what happens if my investments don't do well? What's my protection? Well, just like the market, if the market goes down, your money goes down. You're, you're really just deferring your capital gains taxes. We're not a, a magical, you know, money-making machine. So we just help, you know, you get an extra million dollars, so to speak that you know you would have otherwise written a check to Uncle Sam, let's make some more money off of it. Now, we don't guarantee that, of course. If you invest it in things that are doing poorly, well, then your portfolio is down a little bit. Now, on the flip side, if you're investing in things that are doing well, fantastic, then you know your portfolio is doing well. So that's the part of the flexibility that really kind of mind boggles people. They're expecting it to be something that's guaranteed. They're expecting it to be a product. And, and it's not that. It's not something that we're selling. We're not telling you, hey, this is, you know, going to be a guarantee. If you have certain investments that you want to make and, you know, you're confident in them and uh, they go poorly, then so does your wealth. So that's that's really the big downside is that some people think that it's guaranteed when it's, you know, your investments could do bad. Got it. So if an individual listening has their funds in this trust, is it similar to like if they have their money in, not Robinhood, but like any of the um, 
any of the trading platforms? Like, is it something via software that they could kind of see, they could glance at, or is it something that is not easily that accessible to kind of see the their returns like annually? Like, how does that, you know, some of that look like? Yeah, great question. So we do advise them that, hey, you know, we'd like you to work with if you have a financial advisor, because we don't help on that side of things. So if you have a financial advisor, then please, you know, we encourage you bring them on the calls. Let's get them acclimated with the deferred sales trust, how it works, get them signed up with the estate planning team so that they can learn more about how it works and, and really implement everything up to par. And then on top of that, we also have DST Wealth Management, who Robert Binkley, the founder and the CEO of Estate Planning Team. He's also the founder and CEO of DST Wealth Management. He's just an absolute wealth of knowledge. His resume says it's phenomenal. He's got just countless years of experience. And, and I won't go too far in depth with it. And I can send you over the his bio after this and you can take a look at it and include it at all if, if you'd like to and, and maybe in the comments below or anything like that. But definitely, he he's just a wealth of knowledge. So really... For clients who are looking to learn more about, hey, how's my account doing? We advise that they talk to their their wealth manager just like they would normally if they have other accounts with a financial advisor. As well, on our side, what we do is annually, we do an annual review. Hey, this is how it's performing. Would you like to make any changes to the investments that you're making? How are the allocations? Are you comfortable with it? Are you happy with it? And we have that phone call with everybody on it so that everyone is in the loop. We want to make sure that no one is left behind. Everyone is always comfortable. Got it. Excellent. Any final recap or final thoughts before we end? And just from regards to, again, I think you really just demystified everything. I think it was, you took something that is kind of like hard to understand, especially if someone is going through this type of a life transition where there's like all this other you know, stress or emotions and all this other stuff going on. So I definitely feel like we were able to kind of demystify it and and hopefully make this like very, you know, clear and concise. Any just final recap, final thoughts? The only thing I would say is if, you know, it's never too early to reach out. The worst thing I'm going to tell you is, hey, you know, you might not be a great fit. The best thing that's going to happen is I'm going to say, hey, I think we should get you on a call with our legal team. We don't charge anything for our legal team until everything gets closed. So you don't have to worry about paying absurd fees to talk to you know, a tax attorney, which um, a lot of people are worried about. That is a big concern that I hear. So really, just it's never too early to, to talk to somebody and just to learn more. And uh, if, you know, if there are people who are centers of influence, so to speak, I, I work with people who are CPAs, uh, you know, commercial real estate brokers, really anybody who an individual with highly appreciated assets might go to. I, I work with them as well just to help their clients make sure that they get the most bang for their buck. Because my goal, my personal like ideology for being on this planet is just to help as many people as possible. So I'm really excited to be able to do that for others and help them, especially the folks who are going into retirement, to be able to uh, pursue the things that matter most in life, like spending time with their family. So Thanks for having me, Dave. And if, if you have any other questions, I'd always be happy to uh, hop on another phone call. Yeah, Paul, I appreciate your time. That was awesome. You answered all my questions in, in like I said, in, in a clear and concise way. So if anyone in the audience watching, listening wants to reach out to you, learn more about what you do and who you help and if they qualify or are the right fit for you and your services, what's a good place for them to reach you? Yeah, I'll give you a few. So first and foremost, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So it's just my first name, last name, P-A-U-L, Paul. Last name, it's it's hard to spell and pronounce. It's Ranieri. Everybody gets it wrong, but it's R-A-N as in Nancy, I-E-R-I. 
And then my email address is prenieri, so P-R-A-N-I-E-R-I at ecgsinc.com. And then uh, if you want to, if you like talking to somebody, I know that's how I am. If you want to give me a call or shoot me a text, my phone number is 805-587-0828. Excellent. And you have a show or podcast as well? I do. So I just started let's, it pretty let's, recently. Let's, let's give it a plug. Come on. Let's give it a, give it a plug. All right. So it is, uh, it's on my LinkedIn. Please go subscribe. If you add me on LinkedIn, just uh, send me a quick message just saying, Hey, you know, got heard you uh, on Dave's podcast and really enjoyed it. So I'd love to hear from you guys. And uh, yeah, hop on there. What we do is I just talk to uh, individuals, Dave, I might have to have you on to, uh, to talk about stuff, but what's the name name of the show or podcast? It's called tax strategy digest. And so what we do is we we dive into tax strategies for the ultra rich. And and really it's anybody who is looking to learn more about any great tax strategy and not just the deferred sales trust. Excellent. Uh, go check it out. Say the name of the show again, tax strategy digest. It's also on YouTube. We just started it. I think we've got a couple followers at this point. So go, go like, and subscribe. Excellent. There you go. I think that's uh, usually <laughs> usually more uh, advantageous than listening to music sure. while driving. So go check out the show. Paul, appreciate your time. Awesome to have you on. If you find this interesting and uh, helpful and valuable, go ahead and subscribe to YouTube as well as uh, Spotify and iTunes. We'll catch you next time here on the Dave Kittle Show. Thank you. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.